you're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. Hello, David. Hello, Will. And hello, listeners. Greetings, listeners. Welcome back for finally a pretty straightforward, normal episode. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, this will be a one-part, normal length. Two-person. Nothing special, (laughs) (laughs) two-person. It's good to be back. Yep. So, today's episode, I'm actually really excited for today's. I mean, I'm always excited, but this one's one of my favorite kind of concepts in science that doesn't really get actually discussed a lot of the time, because uh, today we are going over the scientific method. Oh, boy. Yeah. Yeah, Will is so excited that he didn't even tell our listeners what podcast this is. I did not. <laughs> so for those of you, <laughs> I mean, we don't really have to do it, <laughs> but I, I assume that our listeners know what they're listening to, <laughs> just just for completion's sake. This point. is Common Descent Podcast. That's 20 episodes, by the way. 20. This is. This is episode 20 of the Common Descent Podcast. 20. How cool is that? Yes. Scientific so method. to us here on the Common Descent Podcast. Welcome, welcome, welcome. To the Common Descent Podcast. To the Common Descent. Uh, what, what podcast are we? <laughs> okay. I'm going to overcompensate now. Welcome to Science Friday. <laughs> I don't know if anyone else will get this, but welcome to ZomboCom. Uh, I don't it's even get we- that weird weird internet thing that my uh, it like person <laughs> made this like random website and that's all it says is different versions of welcome <laughs> to zombocom no dot com uh, <laughs> and it's trippy and weird huh. and we we thought it was the funniest thing forever this is all boosters <laughs> now <laughs> and that's the announcements for episode twenty <laughs> before we get into our main subject as per usual. We have some news. We do. I I believe David has our first bit of news for the day. I have all the news. I have brought with me all the news. The first bit of the news, of all the news, is about a salamander. I don't know if we've talked about fossil amphibians very much on this podcast. Don't feel like we have. That's generally how fossil amphibians are. Yeah, which is a shame, because they are very cool. Yes, and here's a really cool one. This is a recently published account of Mm -hmm. a fossil salamander that was preserved with not only its skin (laughs) mineralized and not only its internal organs mineralized, but all sorts of internal goodies. Nice. Perhaps the best preserved fossil salamander of all time. Maybe. I just said that. The authors didn't (laughs) claim that. So don't 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 pin that on them. World's best fossilized salamander. World's the best fossilized salamander in Mississippi. So <laughs> this is a study by Tissier et al. in Pier J. About 140 years ago, a salamander that was eventually called Phosphotriton was oh, discovered cool. in France in a in an area called the Phosphorite de Quercy which is a phosphorus mine or a phosphate mine mm-hmm. area. And this salamander that they found was really interesting when they discovered it because it's, you know, it, it's the torso, part of the legs, part of the tail. Mm-hmm. And on the outside, the skin has been mineralized. 
So yes. normally, right, the bones are, are replaced with mineral, and that's mm-hmm. how they become fossilized. If you're preserved in special circumstances, mm-hmm. that can happen to soft tissue as well. And in this case, it happened to the skin and preserve the skin in such great detail that you can tell, A, that it has no scales, because it's a salamander. Yep. And you can see the cloaca. Wow. Yeah. For the uninitiated, the cloaca is the rear exit of most other animals. Think of it as a multi-purpose orifice. Vertebrates. Yes, it is a multi-purpose orifice. At the hind end of a salamander. That was when it was discovered a long, long time ago. This study, uh, in in conjunction with uh, another recent study that was done on this, looked inside the salamander using synchrotron X-ray microtomography, which was not available 140 years ago or even 40 years ago. (laughs) And 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 it's, it's a great alternative to slicing the salamander into pieces to look on the inside. Yes, that's that's it's where the, that's one of the coolest things with developing technology because a lot of times when we wanted to do detailed looks at fossils, it often involved slightly or completely destroying said fossil. Yes, and so we're the technology's alleviating that. Yes, so in this case, they scanned the fossil to look on the inside, and here's what they found: not only was the skin mineralized, but so were tons of internal soft tissue. Including, but not limited to, one lung, muscle tissue, parts of the digestive tract, two glands, or two two organs near the cloaca that they think are cloacal glands, but could also be testicles or kidneys. They're not Mm -hmm. sure what they are. Small segments of the spinal cord inside (laughs) the vertebrae. And a cluster of nerves around the pelvis, which are referred to collectively as the lumbosacral plexus. Wow. Really incredible preservation. Preserved in three dimensions. These are this is the first record of some of the of three dimensional preservation of some of these organs in the fossil record. Wow. Astounding. This salamander is estimated to be somewhere between thirty five and forty million years old. Yeah, I mean that's that's not even particularly young. That's that's no. significant. <laughs> that's Eocene. We're way way back. Yeah, that's really really cool. The other thing that they found is inside the digestive tract there are a bunch of super tiny little bones of a frog. That's awesome. Yeah. So this little salamander ate a super tiny frog, which is obviously it's cool to find things mm-hmm. in a digestive tract. That's always fun, but Apparently, salamanders eating frogs is extremely rare today. Yeah. Apparently, it's not a thing that most salamanders do. So, not only is this the oldest record of a salamander eating a frog, but if their identification of this salamander is correct, and it belongs to a family called Salamandridae, which is the family that includes newts Mm -hmm. and a bunch of different kinds of other salamanders, if that's correct, this is the only known record of a member of this group eating a frog. Wow. From 35 million years ago is the only record of that sort of dietary habit, which this is really interesting. Really cool fossil. Like it's, that's yeah. so many unexpected rare occurrences. Yeah. Now, the one 
unfortunate piece is that the site where this salamander came from, which is actually famous for this preservation style, Mm -hmm. there have been other published studies on a similarly preserved frog where you can see the eyes (laughs) sticking up out of its head. There's a beetle. There's some snake, at least one snake fossil where you can see the scales on the preserved skin. No one knows where this site is. No. Or if it still exists. (laughs) Because these were discovered during a time where the area was targeted for phosphate mining. Yes. So these were collected, put in a museum somewhere, and the fact the fact that nowhere else in this region do we see the same kind of preservation and the fact that we're only seeing it with these particular animals and not any other kinds of animals suggests that the taphonomy, right, the the burial mm-hmm. conditions in this particular place were special. Yeah. There's something unique about them but we don't know where that is. Yeah. And in their paper, they refer to it as a lost site, a lost locality. So that's a shame. And that's not even like that. That has happened before in the history of paleontology, where amazing finds were brought in and, you know, yielded great research, but the location was not actually recorded because things were just uh, techniques weren't quite as, as strict Yep. Back then. Or it was found by someone who wasn't, you know, that still happens today. That happened with, I don't remember if I talked much about this in the SVP episode, but I I wrote an article about a discovery of of some really exceptional dinosaur fossils that were illegally collected. Mm -hmm. And so there was no documentation of where they came from. In this case, it was, as far as I'm aware, it wasn't an illegal collection. It was just the people collecting stuff weren't. Yeah. In the habit of documenting. Well, and it's, you get stuff like that where it's like, well, my grandfather found it in some river, I think, in Montana. You know, yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah like, somewhere in the North America. Yeah, it's like it, he he found it, gave it to my dad, my dad gave it to me, and now I have it. And yep. I, he told me stories about it. It doesn't have a tag. <laughs> <laughs> so if you're finding fossils, oh. dear listeners, record where you got them. They get the GPS coordinates or something. Yes. As Adam Savage says, the only difference between messing around and doing science is writing it down. <laughs> yes. We're going to talk about that in more detail later on, but th- that, in this point, that's very important. Note. <laughs> Indeed. So, from there, to go to another very interesting kind of find in fossils, my first news article actually has to do with another rarity in paleontology, uh, and that's of the proteins and other remnants of soft tissues in dinosaur fossils. Oh boy. Which has been a fairly rare discussion and discovery of things like keratin and collagen and potential remnants of small tissues Mm -hmm. and proteins. Proteins has been a big part of that. This article talks about a research study actually providing evidence against many of those findings. So it's a, Mm. it's an interesting Two sides of the debate. This research is published in Paleos by Evan Saita uh, or Saita at all. Saita. Saita. I'd go with Saita. That's what I, that's that's what I'm thinking it is. So Evan Saita at all. Email us. Let us know. Yes, please. <laughs> These researchers used an interesting technique to effectively age, or what they called maturation, mm-hmm. 
organic materials to simulate the effect of the fossilization process. Okay, so they put living, well, once living bodies... Yes. And subjected them to effects. Absolutely. They use things like uh, keratin and other proteins. Uh, I know they used uh, turkey skin in one of them. Okay. So they, they used a number of different materi- you know, organic materials and subjected them to high pressure and heat, mm-hmm. which most things would experience while being buried and fossilized. Mm-hmm. They use this to effectively speed up the process of degradation or aging that you would see in a fossilized specimen to then compare it to the findings of previous research that have uh, described remnants of dinosaur proteins or other biological agents other than the mineralized bones. Right. And what they found... Uh, according to their results, was not supportive of those mm-hmm. other discoveries. They saw different textures on things. They did. Uh, I know they used uh, blood cells in theirs to see how those changed. They used tissue here and there. And they said that most of it, the keratin degrades into, as they described it, a foul-smelling water-soluble fluid <laughs> that can dissolve or leach away. Yes. So, so not, not something that would preserved. stick around. Yes, yeah. exactly. And the one here, the uh, as they described it in the vacuum conditions of an electron microscope, they looked at turkey skin and the mm-hmm. effects it had on that. And once again said they didn't see similar features to those previous findings. So no, none of, nothing they were seeing in these maturation processes were supporting what other people had described as remnants in other fossils. Now, this is not to say that that does debunk mm-hmm. those findings. This is once again one bit of research, and as as this is this is the first time I've ever heard about the the aging process. So I don't know if it's been widely tested or used. So that's something I'd be curious to find more about. But it's it's definitely bringing up some questions. They suggest that, as has been suggested before, when those materials have been found, that they were remnants of other organic materials, most likely of microbes, right? which has been a common questioning for whenever proteins were found in uh, dinosaur bones or so forth beforehand. Yeah. For some background on this issue, right? So over the last several years, there's been a lot of research that has purported to find keratin and other Mm -hmm. protein collagen and things like that in dinosaur bone, presumably original keratin and collagen, and even structures that, you know, you mentioned blood cell structures that look suspiciously like they might be red blood cells. Mm -hmm. And there's been tons of argument about how can we make sure that this is original material and not a contamination of Mm -hmm. some sort. And people like Mary Schweitzer and, and her colleagues have been working for years and years to regularly trying to prove and test and show like, yes. we are seeing original materials, we are seeing this, we are seeing that. And then there have been people like this group of researchers on the other side going, well, we did this experiment. And in this experiment in particular, they said that the keratin and similar, pro- you know, keratin and any structures that would be involved in the preservation of cells don't survive their mm-hmm. experiment. Now, 
in terms of the experimental process, I am also not a super expert on that, but I yeah. do know that others have raised the question of whether or not their heat and pressure subjugation, that's not the right word, <laughs> their m method of subjecting the specimens to heat and pressure, whether or not that is actually a legitimate simulation of yeah. the fossilization process, especially since it's been suggested that the preservation of proteins might require atypical Unique. fossilization, something special. Yeah, much like the salamander beforehand. Yes. So what they're saying, and I actually saw a couple people talk to, present on these issues at SVP last mm -hmm. year, and I had a conversation with Mary Schweitzer this year, and it, there's a lot of, on the one hand, there's a lot of research has supported mm -hmm. the presence of keratin and other proteins, and then there's others that like this one that are saying, well, that our experiment does not indicate that that should happen. Mm -hmm. Which is interesting because this study, and they mentioned it in the, the study abstract, that they support, and this, this group of researchers does a lot of research on pigments yes. in ancient fossils, which other researchers have pointed out that they don't know if they're convinced that those are authentic. Mm-hmm and not contamination by some sort of uh, more recent microbe invasion. So it's a, it's a whole really interesting area of Absolutely. discussion. It's, it's as typically seen with new fields and new realms of discovery, there's going to be a lot of back and forth on yep. how much you want to lean on those findings and how much you want how much stock you want to put in them because as we constantly say one study does not make a fact yes or overturn one so mm -hmm. it's one of those things where th they make good points in this but you know as was pointed out if they're using typical fossilization as a model well then maybe they need to tweak the maturation process so that it simulates other fossilization processes and see if it has similar results across the board or if one pops up that does have it's one of those where this is one example and so far it's not supporting it but it's also just mm -hmm. one example and proteins are still rare to find it's not like we're realizing they're in every single fossil we've ever dug up <laughs> <laughs> well who knows yes we haven't there found been, that there has yet. been suggestion that they might be much more common than we think they are. Yes. So we're in, we're in a very interesting point in the process of this new discovery. Indeed. The next piece of news is not about fossils at all. <gasps> Take that. What? This is a study, one of a number that have been coming out recently, trying to determine what group is the most basal group of animals. Oh. So if you go back to episode 10, when we talked about the tree of life, yes, we organize our various groups of life based on how they're related to each other, when they originated based on their relatives, things like that. For a long time, it, it, it has been suggested that the first group of animals to split from the rest of animals, the rest of the kingdom, were the sponges. Mm -hmm. That sponges show the most basal characteristics and that they must be have inherited those from the ancestors of all animalia that all the other animals changed since. Yes. This study by Whelan et al. in Nature, Ecology, and Evolution 
says otherwise, oh. and instead suggests that the most basal animal group are the Tenophora, or comb jellies. Mm-hmm. So comb jellies are these animals with these long, see-through bodies. They have combs, where they get their name from, which are rows of cilia, little mm-hmm. wiggly uh, strands, that they wave around, and that's how they swim through the water. They also have tentacles, and I believe they have tentacles on tentacles. So, interesting. Cool little animals. Her- heard you like tentacles. I heard we heard, <laughs> yes, comb jellies heard you like tentacles. <laughs> so, there have been a couple of studies, there's actually been a bit of a debate on this lately, mm-hmm. where different studies trying to figure out the phylogeny of animals, ha- some support the idea that sponges are the most basal, some support the idea that comb jellies are. Yeah looking at morphology and things like that. In this case, what they did was they looked at the genome. They sequenced the genome of 27 species. Nice. More specifically, the transcriptome, which is protein-based, I believe. Mm -hmm. And they threw all that genetic information into a big phylogeny and found that tenophora are on the outside of the rest of animals. Interesting. This is interesting, and it's sort of important to know this because it helps us determine, get a better idea of what the earliest ancestors of the entirety of Animalia would have looked like. And in this case, they suggested that the earliest of the comb jellies, and then perhaps the earliest of animals, were swimming, tentacled, bioluminescent, which is pretty cool. Interesting. Organisms... Trying to get, you know, if this is what the earliest comb jellies looked like, what does that tell us about the very earliest animals? Mm -hmm. They also came to a couple of interesting conclusions about comb jelly evolution. So comb jellies emerge like most modern groups of life during the Cambrian. But for a long time, people have been suggesting, or rather hypothesizing, that modern comb jellies, like the radiation of modern groups, didn't happen until the end of the Mesozoic. Mm -hmm. Their study suggests that modern groups of comb jellies, modern groups of tenophores, originated in the Paleozoic, anywhere between 250 and 450 million years ago, which would indicate that the modern groups are a lot more ancient than we have previously realized. Very interesting. Which is cool. So it's, it's one of those studies that's do that slow, gradual, fine-tuning of the animal family tree and evolutionary history. One of the cool things about that, that discussion between which was the you know, first to branch off is really interesting to me because comb jellies and sponges are not super similar. Like, no. <laughs> they're very, very different animals, which is re- is very interesting just to me because typically when you're trying to figure out who that ancestor is or who that you know f- first to branch off you know that that sort of progenitor is mm-hmm. you're usually looking at very similar specimens within a group of like yeah you know one of these lizards is the first one that gave rise to iguanas and they're both really iguana like you know but slightly different features this one is both you know, could be argued equivalent in their simplicity of design, like, mm-hmm. you know, in, in how, unlike most other animals, you typically, like, neither have true brains or anything like yeah. that, but very different in their overall design, which is, 
not really unique. It's hard to compare them. It's an interesting point because what we're based most of what we're trying to do is figure it out by looking at the modern groups, mm-hmm. which have had almost oh. 600 million years to change from how they started. Mm-hmm. So that throws a bit more of a wrench Absolutely. into that trying to make that comparison. Very, very cool. Early life is always interesting but difficult to decipher. Yes, it is. So my final one is not about the beginnings of life. It's much more recent, but about some of the weirder mammals that are alive today, which would be kangaroos. Kangaroo? That might. This might be the first time we've ever even mentioned kangaroos on the podcast. I do believe that's true. No, no. Well, I think there was one moment we we mentioned locomotion on bipedalism. Oh, that's right. That's true. All right. But okay. Referencing that reference, these kangaroos didn't hop yet. So what? Yeah, these were before kangaroos started to hop, which is a thing I don't even think I knew was a thing. (laughs) Oh, yeah, there's lots of walking kangaroos in the fossil record. (laughs) Like, these, as they described it, these scurried. So, yes, (laughs) these were were what you would more think of, like, just normal tiny mammals, which makes sense. I just don't know that I ever thought about kangaroos not hopping. Yeah. Yeah. So this article is in P3 by Kayleen Butler et al. Mm Mm-hmm. And this is based on some research done at a single site, the uh, Riversley World Heritage Area in northwestern Queensland, Australia. And this site is particularly known for kangaroo remains. I believe the in the article they said that it, or in the abstract they said that they have kangaroos dating back 25 million years yeah. there. Which, just background for everyone, Australia fossils are don't typically go back super far. The record there is very patchy. So anytime you can get a decent range is really, really big deal. Yeah. The kangaroos here are of multiple designs. They, they see a number of different kinds of kangaroos. And one of them that the news article focused on is the balbaridae, which are fanged kangaroos. <laughs> and... Yeah. When they say fanged, if any of you know what a, a llama's tooth structure looks like, it's a kind of a lot like that. They have these little hooked mm-hmm. canines right after the incisors that, still not sure what they were using them for, but yeah. they had these features. You know, it could have been competitive or display or defensive. I mean, the, the options for those kind of teeth are actually very, very broad. Yeah. They're not saber tooth kangaroos. They no. just have but slightly larger canines. Probably would not have been fun to be bitten by. Probably not. They they were they were actually sharp. They're yeah, very interesting looking. Now one of the kangaroos that they they focus on a little bit more is Balbalru Fangaroo, <laughs> which yes is the reason I picked this article. Is this That's article is full of fun names. <laughs> awesome. On top of that fun name, just to let everyone know in case you don't that kangaroos are called macropodiforms. Mm-hmm. Macropod means big, bigfoot. Big feet. Yeah. Big feet. <laughs> there he is. We found him. Bigfoot. It's, Down in Australia. It's just full of fun names. We got Bigfoot. We got Fangaroo. <laughs> I love it. Now, even with those fangs, these were browsers. Mm-hmm. And the reason I'm giving all this backup info is that typically, beforehand, it was believed that the fanged kangaroos went extinct about 15 million years ago, about the same time as a climactic event, mm-hmm. which is understandable. This new research actually suggests that they didn't go extinct until 10 million years ago, which would have meant they survived that climactic event 
So brings into question what caused the extinction. Yeah. And as I mentioned, they find these with the potential ancestors for modern kangaroos. Yeah. Who are also browsers, just like the fang kangaroos, and that competition may have been an aspect there. Interesting. And the reason for the focus is understanding kangaroo extinction can be very important considering that, as they said, 21 of the modern species of kangaroo are vulnerable or endangered today. Yeah, that's And so this is this has some direct conservation aspects. If they can figure out what was putting ancient kangaroos in danger, whether each other or climate, that might give them some information about the modern ones. Interesting. And they also found out a lot of cool stuff in the study, but this was the focus of the news article. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it was a very cool bit of research. Cool. Neat. And they got to study fang kangaroos. Right? That's cool. I am a little bit disappointed that the modern kangaroo groups are the ones that won that competition. Yeah. And the fanged kangaroos went extinct. Have we had we been able to see where those that that fanged evolutionary line could have gone? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it if they were close enough to outcompete each other, maybe it would have gone very similar and mm-hmm. it would have just been big hopping kangaroos with with camel teeth. Exactly. Uh, and they're Creepy. terrifying animals enough. So that would have been <laughs> yes. very... That's just one more notch on the, the rope for Australia. Yes, it would. Venomous kangaroos. <laughs> the saber-toothed kangaroo. <laughs> the uh, venomous saber-toothed kangaroo. They have a frill. They spit poison. Yep. It's well, all they have two glands. Weird. When they mix it, it ignites. And... <laughs> <laughs> They, they chase down Gerard Butler. <laughs> Fire-breathing kangaroo. It's very strange. I do believe that wraps up our news section. <laughs> sure does. That's all the news. All right. And on to the episode itself. Let's do it. So as I mentioned, today's episode is on the scientific method, and more specifically on a discussion of this concept. Mm-hmm. We'll, we'll go over a brief overview of what it is, though most likely everyone has encountered it at some point. But we want to talk about things like, why is this concept important? How do we actually use it? And then also some of the like the confusions or misconceptions or issues that might come up around it. So we're, we're wanting to kind of discuss it as a concept. Yeah, it's one of those things that underlies everything we've talked about on the podcast most, for the most part. So Absolutely. it's nice to take that step back and every now and then and say, hey, what what are we talking about? Where does yeah. all this come from anyway? Why are we all ta- why are we talking about it all kind of the same way? Yeah. So before we go into that discussion, I do want to intro it to just make sure we're all remembering our terms the same way and we're all using the same discussion because that is part of the mentality behind the scientific method. Mm-hmm. Is making sure that we're communicating clearly. So yes. this is those 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 steps that you learned Almost all of us would have heard this at some point in just in an intro science class at some point, you know, somewhere mm-hmm. along the line. So when you're doing the experiments or, or more accurately, retests or repeated ex- experimental processes in your school labs, you went over the scientific method, the steps by which you go through that process of that, that experimental test. Mm-hmm. And it breaks down into simple steps. And you'll see varied of the list where some are more complicated, where they give you really, really detailed things, and some will be very simplified. But the the big main steps are 
you make an observation slash ask a question or you make an observation that makes you ask a question but you somehow end up with a question you you have something you need answered or want answered or yeah. a more detailed Why does answer that to yeah you that flower is yellow why is it yellow yes something to why that do these effect. kangaroos have fangs yes and then you're going to do research you're going to try to figure out if the answer's already been answered you know what where information is out there you're not going to mm-hmm. do a test if someone has if it's already been written down for 50 years you're going to be real disappointed if you get halfway through your research <laughs> oh. project and discover that someone already did this <laughs> oh and it's and it's happened there's there's yes, there's those there's those bitter famous stories of people <laughs> who, unbeknownst to each other, are racing toward the same publication. Yelp. And that's, oh, yeah, that's that's that would be rough. Now, if you find <laughs> out you do not have an answer to your question already due to the previous scientist before you, you now are at the point where you formulate a hypothesis. You've done research, so you've learned a lot about whatever it is, and your hypothesis is either a, a potential answer or a posited conclusion toward what that answer would be of based on the knowledge you've gained. And it may be a broad one. It may be specific. Typically Mm -hmm. people go very specific, but it's something saying, all right, the, the kangaroos have fangs because fangs are good for biting. So it must be biting something with it. That's a potential answer. So that's your hypothesis. Now we're at the point where you're getting into the actual scientific parts of developing testable predictions and testing them. So you need to figure out a way to find that answer by breaking it down either to an experiment or by comparing it to other things. And this is where you're you're either quantifying or figuring out a way to to eliminate aspects of your question down to a determinable answer or evidence. Yes, that's a, it's a, you you said the words uh, testable hypothesis, mm-hmm. which is important. That I, I think these kangaroos were biting things with their fangs. The ste- the next step for testing it is how would we know? How can we support or reject this? Exactly, and and there's lots of ways you can do it. The, you know, this is why the same concept can be tested by multiple people in multiple different ways. Because I could say. Well, if it's biting things, there should be structure in the jaw for muscles for biting. So I'm going to compare it to other aggressively biting animals. Mm-hmm. And I should see a, that's my prediction, I should see a comparison between those those strong biting animals and this one. Yeah, or I could say that when you see animals that bite stuff with teeth like that, you expect to see certain patterns of wear on the mm-hmm. teeth. And so I could do a comparison of teeth. Yes. Now you also have something, and this this is getting into more. You also have something called a null hypothesis, which is the idea that there will be no connection, and that's the the opposite side of that. There's not going to be a pattern once you do the research and find it. Yes, which is it'd be a little weird for this our example. Yeah. <laughs> it does not lend itself to a null hypothesis very well. Exactly. So you every now and then you have to have that fill in. This one doesn't have that as much, but there is that potentiality. Yeah. You gather the data from that research. The data is not the answer. You still have to look for the patterns in the data Mm -hmm. to draw a conclusion. And this conclusion will either support, change, expand, or reject, or some aspect of maybe a combination of those. Reject one part of your hypothesis and confirm another. Yeah. And you readjust your hypothesis. 
you either yeah. reject it or you adjust it, and then you can repeat. You make a new observation about the data you found to form a new hypothesis, and you can now test that newly formed or adjusted hypothesis. And with rep repetition of this system is how you get scientific theories, a body of knowledge and confirmed hypotheses mm -hmm. that, as of yet, have not been overturned by a test done with this method. Yep. And that's the gist. That's, the, that's kind of the textbook example of the, the scientific method. Yeah, and, and we've actually already presented that in this episode. The, the, probably the better example... Uh, well, no, there were a few examples, right? Because they did the keratin study. Mm -hmm. We hypothesized that if we're finding keratin in dinosaur bones, it should survive our simulated fossilization, or it should yes. survive the fossilization process. We're testing that by simulating the fossilization process. What we found is that our hypothesis is rejected, that those mm -hmm. things did not survive. And thus we conclude that this hypothesis is not supported by our experiment. Yes. Or in the case of the jellies, right, we hypothesize that the jellies are going to be the outermost mm -hmm. group of animals. If that's true, we hypothesize thus that the genetic data will be more different for jellies than any other animals are to each other. We tested it. We did indeed find that. Thus, we have su supported our hypothesis. Mm -hmm. that jellies are on the outside. They might not be using that exact language in all those studies, but the process is the same. Exactly. And so this 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 leads us into the why is this important? Why do we have these steps? Uh, you know, why were they first created and why yeah. are they still important today? And the straightforward answer is this is a logical deductive reasoning mm -hmm. way to discover and analyze new information and data. Yep. And that's that's kind of the the core of it is it's it's based off that logical concept. It's not just me looking at something and go, "Hey, I noticed this and mm -hmm. this thing makes sense to me." You're having you're using a set of if then statements and sticking to a way to logically test those sort of yes. statements. It's it's a lot it's trying to keep that potential fallacies out of the mix. Mm -hmm. We definitely, there, this does definitely does have a bit of a historical aspect because we didn't always do science this way. Yes. Science is an invention. We, we came up with science. It's a tool we invented. Which is something that doesn't often get defined that way. You know, typically science is seen as a, a, a group of fields. You know, mm -hmm. science are things that are sciencey, biology, geology, like, yes. you know, electronics, technology, paleontology, sciencey things. Well, when you when you look at, you know, like a, a kid's event or something, it'll be yes. like science fair and the pictures on the thing will be a fossil, a planet, and and there's a tendency to do that and be like, look, Saturn. Mm -hmm. Science. Well, Saturn's not science. Yes. A more, a better image to represent science would be a telescope. Yes. Or a beaker. Or mm -hmm. the the tools that we're using to study the fossils. Absolutely, it, the science is the method, and that's that's and so the reason this is called the scientific method is the method by which to do science. Yes, the, and and science itself is a way to discover truths. Yeah, to perceive the world, you know, in yeah. a 
in a attempted logical way. Mm-hmm. And so that's science is a is a as you said a tool. It's a technique. Because mm-hmm. science often gets listed as a a group of facts. Yes. And that is not what science actually is. That's a result of doing science. Yes, science can produce facts yes. through observation. And so the scientific method keeps us kind of on the right track while doing these things. Consistency is a big part of that. Mm-hmm. You know, If we are going to do science across countries and continents, it's important that I'm doing it relatively the same way you are. Yes. So that we can actually come together and communicate. If we're using vastly different techniques or methods or coming from different logical conclusions, you know, it's, you know, that's the issue with a lot of uh, philosophical ideals is if I'm assuming this base in my philosophy and you're assuming this base knowledge in your philosophy, well, then you, you already have a different set of measurements or units that you're trying to yeah. match up. This gets rid of that to where we're using the same logical system mm-hmm. to try to come to hopefully similar conclusions. Yes. And that's and that's important not only for communication, but because as we say so often, one study mm-hmm. does not prove anything. One study does not settle anything. Repetition is important and the person repeating your study you know, if if I do a study a hundred times and I always get the same result, that's great and all, but what if I'm making the same mistake every time? Exactly. It's important for me to be able to communicate with another person and say, all right, Will, you do it. Here's mm-hmm. how I did it. Here's all my steps. It helps to ferret out those potential is- issues, those those human flaws of, I may not have been doing anything nefarious, but, but I may have forgotten that I'm colorblind. <laughs> you know, and I've been yeah. I've been reading something slightly wrong or I've been misusing something. You know, I mean that that's a very, you know, Saturday morning cartoon way to make a, a mistake, but mm-hmm. some aspect of that of I don't realize my lab actually has a weird vibration due to the generator that throws yes. off all of my <laughs> measurements or continues to mix the chemicals in a way that I wasn't expecting so in a more stable lab it doesn't show that stuff like that yeah the way that i like to think about it uh and it's it's an intentionally callous way to say it yeah but it's that we use science because we can't trust ourselves yeah and that is in that we make mistakes Mm -hmm. it's in that you know not that necessarily we're being dishonest although that also does happen absolutely people can be dishonest but even more interestingly to me, right, that the most interesting part of, of the scientific method to me is is that it strives to get around the fact that our brains are not really good at being at, at finding facts in a logical way. Exactly. It it tries to avoid and undo logical fallacies and cognitive bias. Yes, and we have all the like. There's there's tons of of really fascinating ways mm-hmm. that our brains can do stuff, or that or or things that we can fall into Absolutely. when trying to determine how accurate is this piece of information. Mm-hmm. You know, is this is this a one time result? Do, you know, do, do we take the one time result and go with it instead of 
testing and testing again. Mm -hmm. We have a tendency to do that. Absolutely. Right? Our brains like, for example, we like the first piece of information we hear. Mm -hmm. this is, there's, there's actually a name for this. It's called anchoring bias. Yes. The yes. first thing you hear, you tend to like that better in some situations. In other situations, we like the newest piece of information. Mm -hmm. It's the most up-to-date. Because we assume old is, you know, out of date and new is improved. Yup. There's all sorts of ways that we find patterns where there aren't patterns. Yes. That's a that's a big issue there is the, the pattern seeking. And that's been shown in research over and over again, is the human brain is designed to look for patterns, yeah. uh, which a lot of animal brains are. If you watch any animal, they will quickly figure out where to get food the quickest, which is by looking for patterns. Yeah. And that is that sounds like a really cool tool that our brain is designed to find patterns, but it's not meant to find actual patterns. It's meant to find patterns. Yes, it's not meant to find objective <laughs> yes. truths. It's meant it is. to look for things. And so we will often create patterns in day-to-day -day stuff, observations, mm -hmm. all sorts of stuff like that. This is very easy how things like conspiracy theories can so easily get creative and spiral out of control. Because if I am willing to assume a couple of things, well, then anyone is actually watching me. Yes. <laughs> you know, because I can start finding, I can start, I can start rationalizing every observation mm -hmm. I make. And that, that's a big issue even in, in science is it's really easy to, for you to conf convince yourself that what you're seeing makes sense because it makes sense to you. Yeah. <laughs> and this helps avoid that. We also have one of the most interesting effects to me is that we tend to, we're, we're, we're very uh, suggestible. Yes. So that if an idea is put in your head, it will affect how you perceive mm -hmm. your observations. Uh, this is one of the reasons, for example, that if you are interrogating somebody, Yes. You need to be very careful about how you ask questions. There was, um, I think there were there have been studies done where they've shown that if a if the you know after a a crime or or an mm -hmm. event or something, if you say, "What color was the car?" you get different answers than if you say, "Was it a red car?" Yes. If you put the idea in there in in, in a person's head, they will conform. Even they will. Our memories are fluid. Mm-hmm. And people will change how they're perceiving things, how they remember things. My favorite example of this, because I, I think it's the most obvious everyone can relate to this kind of example, yeah, yeah. is after you watch a scary movie. Mm -hmm. And suddenly all the shadows and all the creepy noises and all the dark rooms in your house are being interpreted in a very different way than they normally are. Yes. Even though they've always been there, mm -hmm. the same noises and it's the same shadows, but your brain has now been primed to interpret them in a different way. Yes. And so if somebody says, comes to me and says, hey, there was a monster in the house. Okay. Were, did you watch a scary movie with monsters in it? Because that can change whether or not, you know, how reliable that observation is. Absolutely. And so using a a set technique for 
making observations and an analyzing information helps to not only keep everyone on track because if we're all trying to do the same thing we're less likely to just go off on our own track doing it but it mm -hmm. also as you said before it means that we can compare notes I can redo your test or I can try to make the same observation and if I come up with different results well then we have to do we not only have to examine that I did it correctly or that our situation was the same but also that you did it correctly and that some mistake wasn't made somewhere or that there's not another variable that's been introduced. Yes. It's a very interesting approach that you're trained when you're trained as a scientist, as both of us were, right? We, yes. we got our degrees in science. What you're really trained to do in a lot of cases is make an observation and then say, all right, what are all the ways that my observation could be wrong? Yes. You, you start looking at the variables and that's a big word in this this method. Yes. How how could I have been mistaken? Mm -hmm. What are all the ways that I could have messed it up? What are and you know not just from our point of you know, not just from the what are the ways I could be, but what are the things that could be influencing? You know, what are the yeah. things outside of me that might be skewing this? And that's the term. Uh, one of the things this technique also does is it it learn, teaches you to focus your study and focus things by being aware of and trying to control variables. Yes. Once again, just a bit of vocab. Mm -hmm. Everyone's taking notes. Yes, there's going to be a quiz. Variable is an aspect that affects the outcome in this situation of a test, but it also just yeah. outcome of an event. You know, So like my lab example beforehand, if I'm in, if I'm doing a, an experiment in the back of a trailer while it's hooked up to a car going down a road, <laughs> it's the stableness of the trailer, how fast the car's going, the condition of the road are all going to affect all the experiments they're doing, especially if I'm like doing a physics experiment of, <laughs> you know, how things move, yeah. you know, a motion experiment. Those are now all variables. Those are things that are going to affect and each of those can change. Variables are things that can be you know changed or be changed and change the effect so that's why in tests you always hear about them saying you can only have one variable and you have your control and your constants and the control is the yes. thing where you just let it go normally and then the others are where you change one aspect not a different aspect each time if we're testing the tooth wear for the fanged kangaroos by different animals mm -hmm. the thing that's changing is the animal we're looking at yes while the constant is we're going to look at the same tooth on each animal we're going to look at the same aspects of the tooth we're going to look at it in the same way and we're going to measure it the same way yeah. because those have to stay constant if we change any of those if we go well this one didn't have a canine so we looked at a molar well that's not the same as a canine so that adds whole new yes. variables you can't do that because now you've you're doing two experiments at once and you don't know what the results are going toward which variables yeah and that's an issue that it's easy to do in the day-to-day -day. like if you're just making an observation you'd be like well i saw it this way this time but i saw it this way this time it must just be random well mm -hmm. maybe not what what changed you have to look at the variables around you did something did something else different that you may not be considering uh, which can be tricky it can actually be really hard to eliminate var variables sometimes because sometimes there are variables you're not aware of yeah 
Like that's how they discovered infrared light is he was trying to figure out which bandwidth of light was hottest. <laughs> and he had one in the shade outside of the, or in the shade outside of the spectrum to be like, all right, yeah, and this yeah. will be my control. And then the control got the hottest because <laughs> infrared yeah. light's invisible. <laughs> and so it's so, like, sometimes there may be things that you don't know to get rid of because it's not something you're aware of yet. And that's the benefit again of that replicability. Yes. And it, it's sort of, inherent in the scientific method that you look at another person's results and you say, all right, what are the ways that this could have been done incorrectly? What are yes. the things we can check for? And and in a sense, you can al- almost, you, you use the method on itself. Yes, exactly. And you say, okay, my hypothesis is you did this wrong mm-hmm. for this reason. And now I'm going to test that. And so you're, you're constantly building and we're looping and, and doing this same the same steps however you're doing them however they're they're manifesting over and over and over again until you have removed as many alternatives and as many variables and as many possible excuses possible explanations as possible there's a lot of the, I said possible a whole lot but you know yes. what I'm saying the, the possibilities of these possible situations are endless possibly limitless possible the ideal with this and what what we've been kind of touching on and answering on this whole time is that every time that this process is used correctly we will i don't want to say eliminate because that's a bit dramatic but we will push away the less correct answers and Mm -hmm. get closer to or reveal the more correct answers and that it will build on itself either by using it to test other things or by continuing the process from previous tests and observations and that every time you do it it builds on itself and if it's being done correctly and honestly and and if our you know if our assumption that when we observe things we can actually observe them correctly mm-hmm. we are working toward and building toward more correct answers each use of this is one step toward the the, the slightly better option Yes. So to to use that protein study, right? Mm-hmm. That's that study used one method to suggest that the proteins can't survive in dinosaur bone. Mm-hmm. But then you go to the other side and there's a decade or so of other studies that seem to indicate that it can through various methods. Yes. And then there's some other studies that say, well, no, maybe not. And now what they're doing and what you have to start doing is going into each of these studies and saying, all right, this study didn't work. Mm-hmm. We tested it. We showed that to be true. That's the and we're throwing that study out. We had yes. this hypothesis that might be a good explanation, was never supported. We've thrown it out, and you're narrowing it down until you finally have an answer. Exactly. And I think it's important to 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 point out that in science you're expected to look at observations, to look at results, to look mm-hmm. at at suggestions with logical suspicion, I guess? Yes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Skepticism. Yes. Which is not the same as rejection. Mm-hmm. You know, being skeptical is saying, okay, what are the reasons that this could be wrong? We're not assuming it's wrong. Yes. And that's diff- That's different, and I think that that gets mixed up a lot, is that you absolutely. don't say, I assume everything is wrong until proven otherwise. 
the way I look at skepticism, because it's it's a hard thing Go to define, it. Yes, it is, is. <laughs> I look at it as every time you're given a piece of information, you weigh it on a scale. Is mm-hmm. is your I'm not I'm not taking it with any real prejudgments, but when I get the information, I go all right. With what you told me, there's about eh, a much of stuff supporting it, and uh, a month of much uh, of stuff that might not be supporting it or might be going against it. Mm-hmm. And you you wait every time you get information, you adjust the scale, and you're yeah. you're never just going to go all right. Yes, I agree with it. That is my stance. I have decided. It, that scale is always there and can always swing back the other way. And being skeptic means you're always prepared for that fact that it is not that the information you're given is not a a single answer. It is just another bit of data to add to your adjustment to how reliable is this idea or concept or you know hypothesis versus how how shaky is it? You know how how unreliable is it? Yeah, and I think that that what I would add to that is that it's keeping in mind yeah, is how likely is this to be reliable? Yes, yes, what are, exactly. How many ways are there, or how obvious is it that this could be not true? Mm-hmm. Like, if your kid comes out of the the bedroom and says, "Hey, there's a monster under my bed," you don't believe them, right? You don't accept, and mm-hmm. it has nothing to do with you know, any philosophy or anything. It's just, yeah, there's a really high likelihood that that is an untrue statement for many, many reasons. But if I'm, if we're driving in the car and I look at my watch and I say, hey, the sun's going to come up in a few hours, that's the odds of that being untrue, assuming I'm reading my watch correctly, are extremely low. Low enough that no one's worried about the sun not coming up? Yes, and uh, to give a to give a uh, modern day, just day to day life example that most people can relate to, when you hear movie reviews or like very early m- movie reviews, as I've said earlier, I relate everything back to film. If you were yes. to hear someone say, "Hey, the most recent re- like the, the 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 critics' early viewing says that the next and not to you know poop on anybody's if anyone's a fan, but the next Michael Bay film is a masterpiece." You're going to go, yeah, but I haven't liked the other stuff that he made. And they've been pretty consistently not stuff I liked. So I'm not – of course, yes, he could. There's no reason to say that it's not because we don't know. We haven't seen it. But evidence suggests probably not. So I'm going to – I'm probably not going to take that as gospel. You know, but if it comes out and you're like, hey, the next – you know. I, I, I can't pick a franchise where there's not going to be someone who's going to disagree, but the next Lego movie is a ton of fun. You're like, okay, yeah, so far. Or the next Pixar film. There, that's that's a good one. The next Pixar film there is heartfelt and amazing. You're going to go, okay, yeah, probably. Now, see, I was going to say that, that, that the problem with that analogy is that it's based on opinion. Yes. But then you brought up Pixar, and that that's just factual. So That's factual, yes. Those are good movies. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, that's scientifically proven. Yes, that, that is that is factual. But no, it's 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 a it's a good point in that that and this is something we'll probably talk a bit more about that science works in likelihood. Yes, exactly. Yes, it's it's and in the general sense, science is a statistical process. Like you said, we look at the body of knowledge and the body of research to where, like, all right, 
one is not enough because that's not statistically significant. That's the reason one study is not enough. Yes. Is statistically, there is so much that could have gone wrong, just as much as there could have been to go right. So it is, mm-hmm. it's effectively, it cancels itself out. It's irrelevant, you know? Yeah. Well, it's not irrelevant now, because it's, it's, it's a good thing to know. Yes. And, and when you have one, that's all you have to go on. And so that's what you So yes, it's not do. irrelevant, just, but statistically speaking is what I meant. It does not yeah. count into the equation. But when you get five that all agree, so now you're starting to get a trend. You're starting to get yes. You know, once again, using statistical terms, you're starting to get a yeah, statistical yeah. trend. You're starting to see a pattern, and every now and then you will get ones that disagree. You know, mm-hmm. but there could be a number of reasons those disagree. They may not necessarily disprove those. They may just disprove an aspect, or they may be specifying. You know, we may yes. end up looking at it and go, "Yes, that was true." that it did not support in that situation, but that's because in that situation, what we were saying doesn't work. You know, we found that there's actually a, a bandwidth that, you know, our observation falls within, and that one was actually either narrowing it or just on the outside of it. There's yes, lots of different and, things. And that statistical issue comes up a, a lot in paleontology. Yes. Because a lot of the time you don't get a great sample mm-hmm. with your fossils. So if you're trying to say, right, what can we say about Carnotaurus, mm-hmm. right? Well, Carnotaurus looked like this, and they ate this stuff, and they, they lived here, and they have all these things, and that's great, but there's only one specimen. Yeah. So how well do we know that that specimen really represents that whole species, that mm-hmm. whole genus? Well, on the one hand, we've seen lots of different dinosaurs. It doesn't look like any of the others, right? The the, uh, the likelihood of it actually being just a mutant Giganotosaurus or something, yes, not very high. But the likelihood that other Carnotaurus varied a little bit, mm-hmm. were different from the one that we have, is extremely high. Yeah, it's, it's a it's a very high potential that that you know could have been the case. So. And so that's that's the struggle when trying to come up with stuff like, you know, do we ha- are we seeing sexual dimorphism in these dinosaurs? Yeah. Males versus females. Well, if you only have 10 or 12 of them, it's really hard to find a trend in that. It's like, all right, well, six of them look like this and six of them look like that, but there's only 12. How much variation is there within the sp- within a species? Exactly. What exactly are we seeing? On the other hand, there are cases when the fossil record is great. And we talked about mm-hmm. this in episode 12, the fact that the geologic time scale is, re- right, the order of events, the order from older fossils to newer fossils, older occurrences to younger occurrences, older rocks to younger rocks, is over and over and over again shown to be the case repeatedly, Yes. Tons and like the sample size for the fossil record is in the billions. So when we find a fanged kangaroo mm-hmm. at 10 million years instead of 15 million years, we can say, okay, we were missing this one. Yes. Instead of saying the geologic timescale is wrong. Exactly. That's not necessarily a knock against. Now, if you know, if we suddenly developed a new technique and started finding stuff like this, like to great degrees happening all over the place then now we might have to step back and go, all right, maybe there's right. a problem with the bigger concept. 
the reason those theories have persisted is because that's yet to happen. Yes. And so it's it's exactly that concept. You know, it's you also see this in I I, I like contributing the scientific method to your day to day because it's really easy to see not only the processes of thinking, the logical processes in the scientific method used in people's day to day, and even things like animals and infants. You'll see them use that process of making an observation, think about it, try something. Not like the mm-hmm. results. Try it a little different. It's the same <laughs> concept. But you also see a lot of the issues that scientific method is there to combat in just day-to-day stuff of this not enough sample size is the same thing of going like, well, every person I've ever, you know, met likes <laughs> Tom Wayne, you know, John Wayne movies. So people, human beings like John Wayne movies. It's like, okay, but if yes. your town just has 50 people in it and you're out in the Midwest... <laughs> then that's not a reliable sample size. You know, you yeah. You have to... Now, my dad's going to hear this and go, no, people like John Wayne movies. That's, <laughs> you're not a human being if you don't like John Wayne movies. I already hear you saying that, Dad. You don't have to text me. My example <laughs> my example was going to be a bit more uh, contentious, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> which was going to be, uh, this is where I... And I remember this happened at the museum where somehow climate change came up and one mm-hmm. of the people said, well... It was super cold this winter. Yes. And I, I think they were from Oregon or Oklahoma mm-hmm. or something. It's like, okay. And that's your anecdotal one sample versus your data. Exactly. And so it's it, it, it applies in a lot of ways to where it's really easy to forget that what seems like a significant body of data because every carnotaur ever that we <laughs> yeah. have discovered has this feature but if you only have a specimen, then it sounds big because of the way I worded it. And that's yeah. how it can very easy you get worded in your head where I've yet to find anything that can contradict this, but we haven't found much. So yeah. you're still in the baby steps. And that this gets into a lot of how we use it in daily situations. Uh, I mean, it, it, how it actually gets used is in these, you know, it can be used for multiple forms of analysis, but in science it's used for those attempts to look at the information, the things we're observing, whether it's the movement of the planets and the stars or the fossils we found or the chemical reaction of why do the, why does the driftwood burn green? You know, I mean, Mm -hmm. whatever it is. And then teasing out step by step until you eventually land on the answer to the overall question or even a bigger question sometimes. Yeah. Or as close as you can get. Yes, because that—that's the other thing that that happens with, with science is that interesting question of, and this is something that that comes up a lot and that mm-hmm. we don't prove things in science. Yes, because that mindset that I mentioned before of constantly thinking, okay, how could I be wrong? Like, what what are the variables that might make this incorrect? And if you're really sticking to that mindset, there's the little part in the back of your head that goes, well. <laughs> I could be dreaming all of this. Yes, the or brain there the could jar. be like there is a possibility that we are wrong about literally everything. Yeah. Now, that much the like the sun real. rising, the odds of that, right? There's the indications that that is true, right? There is there is no apparent evidence that would lead us to think mm-hmm. that the sun won't come up in the morning and also there's no apparent evidence that would lead us to think that you know, whatever explanation you can think of for everything being wrong. Yes. 
So while it's possible, it's not the kind of thing that we let cripple everything. Right? You're not worried that the sun's not going to come up to you. You're not planning for it. No, but, but that that is a really important point to make and, and aspect of the scientific process and method and mentality. And mm-hmm. it's hard for a lot of people to stomach, uh, not for any lacking on their part. It's a, it's a very, in ways, inhuman concept to just accept that. <laughs> and even scientists, you know, because as you said, if we're truly wanting to be scientific in our thinking, we really should have those moments of like, well, I assume reality is reality, but it might not be. Uh, and I mean, yeah. So we far, do. <laughs> all the evidence points that way. But at any moment, I could wake up in the pod on the tower facing a robot. I mean, yep. there's nothing stopping that from happening because we haven't tested that and there's because there's no way well, to test it yet. So right. there are like, probably physicists who would disagree with you. But yeah, the that's point true. Stands. That's true. But it's it's. I mean, but the that that extreme example. There's lots of things where it's like we haven't found any evidence for that 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 idea. Mm-hmm. But it's it's that doesn't mean it couldn't pop up at any moment. Anything could be wrong, which is kind of unsettling, you know, when you dwell on that yeah. concept for too long. And I think that makes a lot of people uncomfortable with science in general because that's not a, that's not a fun idea. Yes, <laughs> it's not fun to find finally suddenly find out some aspect of what you thought was reality, whether that's Pluto being a planet or <laughs> T Rex having feathers. Mm-hmm. Suddenly having it changed on you is unnerving, but it's even more so when that's the base conclusion, the or the base assumption in science is that it's always in flux and it could always change. We're constantly tweaking it, even if we're still supporting it. We're constantly going, well, actually, gravity actually kind of works this way. You know, we're learning yeah. more about gravity every day, even though the theory is still sound. Gravitational force is still a thing. We're understanding mm-hmm. more about it every time we do tests on it. And realizing that there are aspects of it we never knew. Yes. So at any point, we could suddenly go, huh, well, we were way wrong. We, we finally <laughs> found this one particle, and it's going to rewrite every step of the way. It's not likely, but yeah. it could. And I think that that's something that if the way that science works is a way that our brains aren't typically prepared for. And that is that if we find something, if we find a new method, find new evidence that changes a way that we were thinking previously, a previous explanation, and it's supported, mm-hmm. and the as best as we can test it, it's true, that change should happen immediately. Yes. And that's not how our brains work. We no. don't like this idea. That, okay, rewrite all the textbooks, mm-hmm. even if it's a little thing. And usually, you know, you, the, the new the headlines love to say, textbooks rewritten and... and yes disproven and this this cures cancer but no this doesn't cure cancer and that's because they're constantly referring in in absolute terms over usually single studies yes but when it actually does happen and we say okay well this is the more accurate arrangement of the Mm -hmm. dinosaur family tree for example okay that should that should be it now yeah and all of us should go okay evidence suggests that We've all agreed on this evidence. We've tested it. We've done all this. We agree. All right, that's what it is. Mm-hmm. But we don't like doing that. We don't like changing things, and we don't like we we like to hold on to what's familiar. Yeah, that also leads to you know a, a similar mindset. With that, also leads into some misconceptions when it comes to doing the scientific method. With that, there's correct and incorrect outcomes. Mm-hmm. You know that if I like if I was 
testing my hypothesis that I'd see similarities. I'm going to go back to the kangaroo between yeah their bite the the, the musculature structures of their jaw and other strong biting animals and I don't that doesn't mean I failed my hypothesis yes. was incorrect but I got data yes. and that's if as long as I did my tests in a, a, a accurate fashion in the fact that I did not allow for tons of variables and I didn't change and I wasn't sloppy in the way I did it and change my techniques then it's good data and as long as you get good data then it was a successful test and it was it, you successfully did science Yes, and I think that so now we're talking about misconceptions. Yeah, right, this right? is getting into this it, it, branching off of that whole aspect of why it's hard to accept it is also uh, in there. A lot of it is misconceptions that these these either misunderstandings or misviewings of the method that can lead you to distrust it or not necessarily want to take it at first face value when we say no, no, this is this is the way it is. Is that Pluto shouldn't count as a planet, or else we should have twelve. <laughs> You know, we, yeah. Or we should have 20 or however many we end up finding. And I think that there is that sort of mindset, right? We like to gamify things. And mm -hmm. if your hypothesis, right, it's not a trivia challenge. Yes. You don't have to be right with your hypothesis. If your hypothesis is disproven, that's awesome. Because mm -hmm. you discovered a thing, right? You learned something. And this is something that's not just a misconception in sort of, right, the way we talk, about the language we use about yeah. science. It's, it's also, right, that comes up in publishing and it comes yeah. up in reporting where we don't like to do studies with negative results and we don't like to report studies with negative results because they're boring because exactly. the study says we looked to see right we we are challenging this idea right they, these people said that the, the kangaroos were living this way we think they were doing this other thing let's test it oh no they weren't we no were wrong. Evidence. It's the same as it was. Yeah. That's great. That's fantastic yes. because you learn something new, but it's not, you know, it, it's that, that sort of, it's psychologically less satisfying. And so a lot of times that stuff doesn't get talked about very much. And a way to think about it, to kind of visualize it, is if you were to put a 52 card deck out on a floor face down and told to find the ace only by flipping over a single card at, the at a time. Mm-hmm. Every time you flip a card over isn't a failure, you've eliminated a wrong answer. And yeah. and that's the way to think about it is you didn't get it wrong. You were just told to find the ace. That doesn't mean every time you don't means you're doing badly. It means okay, I now know that all of these cards not the ace. You know, yes. I now know that all of these hypotheses are not the case, which narrows down ideally. It narrows down yeah. the possible correct hypotheses further. So now you're more likely to pick from a more correct observation or solution and lead you toward that that truer answer. Which, once again, is not fun. People don't like that, you know. <laughs> yeah, it can be it can be tough. It's it's like puzzles. Yes. I do not often enjoy doing a puzzle if it's like cuz I don't I like if I'm doing a puzzle, I like to see the result. Mhm. Mm and if you're doing a big puzzle, half the time all you're seeing is colors. It's like, yeah. hooray, I found this puzzle piece, but all right, all right, it's it's another blue one. Yeah, I made a bigger patch of black. Yes. <laughs> but what's nice is you're eliminating the free pieces. Mm -hmm. You're gradually building this puzzle. The thing with science is that the puzzle might not get finished while you're still alive. Yeah. Like the next generation might have to do it. 
So yeah, it it can be. It takes a lot of patience. And scientific puzzles don't have edge pieces, so yeah, it'll it'll connect with someone <laughs> else's puzzle. <laughs> which yes, it will. Is connecting to other, and so it's it's that it. If we were truly, once again, like biologically scientific beings, if we were robotic, or if we were, you know, mm-hmm. some analytical species, we would be doing research all the time, constantly going, has anyone tested whether blueberries are actually combustible when <laughs> put in, when yeah. put at a certain velocity? No, no one has. All right, test that. Was it? No, we didn't expect it to, and it wasn't. All right, good. Like, yes. those kind of studies should be happening all the time just to eliminate the possibility, just to make sure that we haven't overlooked something just because we assumed and that it made sense that it wasn't the case. Even though there's no reason to really assume it was, that's still good data, but it feels like a waste of time. And sometimes it can almost, you can almost over-test if you're just going down where it's like, all right, but there's no reason for us to be, to, to be looking in that direction. So look in the direction yeah. where... It seems to be leading. You know, that's well, and again, it's route. a likelihood thing. Exactly. Based on our understanding, based on what we've received before, we would not expect this to happen. Let's spend our time yes. elsewhere. So one thing I definitely want to mention, in a discussion about the scientific method, I definitely feel we need to very quickly address the whole theory versus a hypothesis yes. concept, which we've used both those terms, and we've defined them both. And anyone who is even just a fan of science, regardless if mm-hmm. you even work in the field, has had to have a conversation explaining why <laughs> it's just a theory is not a valid statement yeah. when criticizing a scientific concept. And the issue here is that we're using two different sets of vocabulary. Yes. We're using, and I, I don't like the term layman's because that feels insulting to the, the people because it's, it, it's layman is not an endearing term. Yeah, but I, I thought about that too. I don't know where it comes from. I, I mean, I, th- I think it probably was insulting in its origin. Uh, like Maybe. I, I, I think it probably did have a bit of downcasting. <laughs> but the general public, the people who are not scientific in either their background or interests, a theory is the same as just saying an idea. Mm-hmm. That, that gets used constantly. But it, it is something that uh, we who, who work in science... That is something we notice because it has been levied against us many times because of this assumption that hypothesis, idea, and theory are all synonyms. Mm-hmm. And ergo, when you say evolutionary theory or whatever whatever theory you may be having issue with, that you're really just saying, okay, yeah, but that's just that's just a theory. Yeah. But there's scientists never actually use the term, or or typically don't, or avoid it, scientific fact because that's a very, you know, as we said. Science doesn't prove, and saying scientific fact can often be, well, yeah, yeah, but that fact might get overturned. So yes. theories then, are what we're typically talking about. Yeah, and that it, one of the issues with this is that the word theory has several meanings mm-hmm. depending on the context you're using it in, yes. and it's changed over time. Yes. So you can use theory to be, right, I have a theory, right? I have an idea off the top of my head. This is yes. my theory. But then you can also talk about it as a hypothetical we say in theory yes this should work but then when you're talking about like music theory mm-hmm. you're talking about the academic field of research surrounding a thing called music mm-hmm. and so one of the real i mean i think the big issue is that this is a poorly defined word or at the very least it's a very fluid word it is absolutely and and i think that 
for me, I always like to make the comparison with music theory or color theory when, yeah. I, when I think about gravitational theory or mm-hmm. evolutionary theory. We're not, no one says this, this guy came up with the idea of color. Yeah. No, it, it's how do we use color? Where does color come from? What are the yes. aspects of color? All the questions and explanations that go into it, into a conversation surrounding color. Yeah, all the fundamentals that build together to color theory. Yes, and and so that gets you into these weird places where something like evolution, which is very strange in that it is, the word evolution has come to refer to the change in, in organisms through time, mm-hmm. which is an, ob- an observed phenomenon. Yes. But also to refer to evolutionary theory. Yes. Which is a vast 200-year-old body of experiments and hypotheses and explanations and questions and applications on different evolutionary processes and specific situations. And so it can get, you know, that the terminology can get very, very confusing. But in the strictest sense, right, a hypothesis is, I think this is a thing. I Mm -hmm. think this is, I suggest this might be a, a, a solution. And your theory is in theory, your well-supported body of explana- of, of yes. facts that, that explain and support your central observations. And, and once again, this gets into the, the issue of science is not a body of facts, you know? Right. It is a process of learning. It's a process of analysis. And anything science has revealed is multiple results of that process. Yes. And I I think, and this may be, this may not clear it up or this may not be the best way, but it, to me it's kind of the equivalent of saying, are you an organism or a bunch of cells? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Yes. <laughs> but, you know, you can't, you can't separate those, you know, mm-hmm. you can't separate those two, those, yes, gravitation, you know, gravity is a thing. And gravitational theory is the body of knowledge for which we have learned about that thing and all the aspects and way we've observed it and the different situations in which we've researched it. Mm-hmm. So it's you can't you can't you can't separate them like they're different things. Yeah. You know, it's 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 all a very fluid body of knowledge is the best way to say it. Yeah, constantly refining, constantly yes. adjusting, growing, but built shrinking on a when things get disproved. Yeah, there, there, there is one other thing that I wanted to say. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. We talked a bunch about this this idea of, right, how we talk. You know, we're talking a lot about our terms, mm-hmm. our language, the way we talk about uh, science. And I think that a lot of, you know, we were talking about misconceptions about, the, you know, the, the, this idea of where confusion can arise. Yes. And it's interesting to me that the, the language of logical reasoning, right? The language mm-hmm. of science, the language of deduction is not normal person language nope. in a lot of cases. And this has come up and I, I want to share two anecdotes to, to share this. Yes. One is a more serious anecdote. I was having a conversation with a gentleman on the internet, on, on, on ye old interwebs. Yes. At some point, And we were going back and forth, having a discussion and we, I, I, as part of this discussion, I shared an article about some fossil mm-hmm. site that was talking about the, the nature of the fossil site and the, the way it was deposited. And this person's response, and I actually pulled it up so that I could read this. They said, your article seems to struggle with the evidence. Notice 
the words of uncertainty, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the words of uncertainty that this person pointed out were things like, we can infer, must mm-hmm. have been, implies the suggestion, this would. And I thought that was really, really interesting because the yes. words he, yes. that they're pointing out are the words of logical deduction. We're not saying yes. this proves this. This means this. By looking at this fish mm-hmm. fossil, we know that this, the evidence doesn't tell us facts. The evidence doesn't tell us yeah. certainties for the most part. Right? The fact is, right, I have a fish. Okay, sure. I, yeah. mo- outside of the matrix possibilities. Yeah, okay, that's a fact. You, you're holding it. This is a fossil yes. fish. But if we're trying to interpret the depositional environment, the way we use that language is reflect it's the it's a very honest reflection of how we're yes. coming to that. We are inferring that knowledge. That knowledge that yes. that observation suggests this result. It implies Absolutely. this result. It does not confirm this result most of the time. Mm-hmm. And that's not the way normal people talk, right? We 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 like to say, oh no, this happened, so I know this. And that that sort of speech is not only not how people normally talk, but would be considered quote unquote weak. Yeah. If if you were, if I were to go and ask someone advice on a j- job interview and give them a spiel, and I used a lot of that, they'd say, "Hey, you're going to want to use a little bit more stronger language. You, know, yeah. you want to sound confident. You want to sound, you know, self self uh, uh, aware and uh, assured. So you don't want to use a lot of that because that makes you sound wishy washy. And that's the mentality around that speech is that it, it doesn't sound absolute because it's not. And that equals sounding kind of weak or weak-footed. Yeah, and, and that actually leads into my other anecdote, which is mm-hmm. a funny anecdote, kind of. That was <laughs> in a previous relationship of mine. Mm-hmm. I ha- My partner complained to me at one point about my language because yes. she pointed out that it seemed like I would I wasn't committing to plans because instead yes. of saying something like we are going to this restaurant on your birthday I would say we're planning to go to the restaurant on your birthday yes are we're we are aiming to go to the restaurant on your birthday we're hoping to go to the right I would say that and it, it wasn't until she called me out on it that I kind of reflected on it and I realized that the reason I did that is because that science training is in the back of my head. And if I were to say, we're going to the restaurant on that day, the back of my head goes, but what if it closes? What if you're sick? What if it rains? What You don't know mm-hmm. that. You don't know that you're going. There's a, t- there's a bunch of likely reasons, like perfectly mm-hmm. likely things that could happen that would make your sentence false. There is a decent chance that you're lying about that, <laughs> even if you don't realize yes. it. Inadvertently. Yep. That is, I do the same thing whenever we're planning an event, and someone will be like, okay, so how many people are going? And I go, well, 12 people have responded. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Because, <laughs> and once again, that's me using my my previous knowledge. of it's, It is extremely unlikely that no one cancels. Yeah. So I'm not going to say 12 people are going. You know, if I had to estimate, I'd say 10 people are going. Because twelve have responded, you know, yes. it's sort of thing. Yeah, I I can tell you what I know, <laughs> and no more. 
Yeah, and so it's really interesting to see where that sort of dissonance occurs between the language we're trying to be as accurate as possible. And this actually does come up a lot with things like, you know, when when the IPCC releases their climate report and they say, you know, people will criticize it and say, look at the words there. They said this strong possibility Mm -hmm. of whatever effect it is that they're saying. And then you have people in the science community going, that's about as powerful (laughs) a a statement as you're going to get. It's like, that's this, you know, what what to us is wielding a heavy mallet to others is the little hammer they use to test, test your reflex, like <laughs> the little squeaky hammer. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and so it's and th- that issue in terms is something that's common. I I had a conversation with my my brother one time because he's much more of a uh, I don't like he's much more of a food connoisseur is not quite the right word. He he likes to cook. He likes to yeah. know. He likes a glutton. to glutton. <laughs> a glutton. Yeah. Yes. No. <laughs> He 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 you know has passing interest in chefery. All right. He has that interest, and at one point he described something as uh, pungent. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I don't I don't think it was pungent because to me pungent has always meant a very strong smell with the impliedness of unpleasant. You know? Yeah. It doesn't smell bad, but it doesn't. It smells a little too much, yeah. and it's not in a good way. Is that's what pungent meant to me? And he and he was like, oh no no when when. People who cook use it, they typically just mean it's very strong. It yes. does not necessarily mean negative. It just means strong. But once again, if I had just read a report and it goes, this very pungent souffle, I'd be like, oh, gross. No, thank you. That sounds disgusting. Yeah. <laughs> I'll never go there. Well, that's another thing we do in science is we try to keep our terms standard. And again, that's not how language works <laughs> to keep your terms mm-hmm. never changing. And so that, you know, because we want to make sure that Ask any English major and they'll tell you. Oh, yeah. No, language is fluid. Words change all the time. Yes. In science, you can't do that because you're trying to... Like, the, point, the point of jargon is that everybody understands what you're saying. Mm-hmm. And so that's why we get all up in arms about people calling Dimetrodon a dinosaur. I'm yes. looking at you, Wizards of the Coast. Not a dinosaur. I read your, I read your monster manual. Yes. You race it all the <laughs> time. It's not in the dinosaur races. Well, because... If if everyone's got a different understanding of what this word means, then you can't talk about it. Mm-hmm. And so terminology gets gets really strict. At least it's supposed to. And and I think probably the biggest conflict in science, the biggest, well, not the but one of the biggest yeah. <laughs> obstacles that we run into trying to do all of this is, again, the logical language, the logical procedure, the mm-hmm. logical way of thinking is not the way we are hardwired to do it. And so even scientists, you will hear them all the time, talk yeah. about, use theory in a colloquial sense. Absolutely. This is my theory. We'll, we'll say certainties and then get called on them later, mm-hmm. right, by it's, another it, person. That's human, not to, not to use this term, but the, the human nature. It's, yeah. it's, it is habit in especially our societies today to, to speak that way. That's how you speak conversationally. Yep. And so when you're having conversation with other scientists, it's still hard not to. Yeah. And that's why scientific papers are such a chore to read, because yes. they're not written like a human wrote them. They're written like a robot wrote them. And that, that's kind of Absolutely. the point, but it also, it's got its uh, yeah, <laughs> it's got its downsides. Absolutely. The, the two points to make off of this and then wrap things up So for the sake of time and our listeners' uh, overstressed yes. ears. <laughs> Um, the the use of the language. One thing you can notice next time you look at a paper, if you, if 
you're not in the habit of reading them is is look in the intros or abstracts a lot of times and you will see them defining their terms yep which is something really interesting that you have to do where you if i'm if i'm going to shorthand something i will write it out give you what the shorthand's going to be and then use that shorthand from there on mm-hmm. or if i'm going to just like when i was doing my research on skull bones there are a lot of features that i was using as measurement points that don't really have a name because it's the bump after the first bump. Yeah. So it's a good feature that's always there, but my study had not been done yet, so that feature hadn't gotten a set name, so I had to find a name for it. And so I have to say, all right, this is the blah, blah, blah. That's what I'm calling it from here on. Yeah. And that's something they have to do. But the other thing is something you mentioned on, like, the reason that language isn't always consistent or, you know, not always agreed upon is, and this is another issue with the misconceptions about science, and we can get into this subject on another episode, yeah. but that we don't have a all-scientists committee. Yes, you know, this is true. We don't have a, a global annual meeting where every scientist gets together, we review notes from last meeting, and go over the term changes. You know, it's... Scientists are all individuals working in small groups and ideally willing and as often as possible working together Mm -hmm. in as wide a variety as possible. But even if I work with 50 other scientists, I'm still only hitting a very small percentage. Even if I work over them a vast demographic, if I work in them, every single one's from a different country, I'm still probably not going to hit every country that whatever my science is, is done. Oh, so yeah. it, you, you can only spread so far. So there's always going to be a little pocket of, oh, this is always the what the way I called this, is what I learned. Yep. I never heard it any other way until I read your paper. And that person's saying the exact same thing, because it's a big world. And that, I think, is a great ex- a great point to, to point out that the thing that unites all those scientists mm-hmm. is, you ready for that full circle? <gasps> the methods we're using. Absolutely. Same steps, as, as similar as possible terminology, mm-hmm. similar language, to to make sure that we are standardizing the way we observe the world. Absolutely. Now, the to, to round our conversation off, you know, it, it would be unfair not to mention that some people have pointed out issues before saying that this method may limit the view of science, that there's only one way to do science, and that if you step outside of the steps you are doing it wrong or you aren't doing science Mm -hmm. and that people have criticized the method for this that it it portrays science as a one-trick pony basically that yeah there's one right way to do science and everything other than that is wrong or bad science Mm -hmm. which brings up some good points if you you know you definitely could get stuck in a mentality where you're not looking at things from different angles because you're stuck in a pattern yeah and that's happened thinking about doing it one yeah absolutely where we overlook something, but the scientific method is not saying, here is the recipe for science, follow it or die. Right. It, you can do it, some, many people do it out of order, where they dis, they stumble across a discovery and now have to go back and ask, okay, but why that discovery? Mm-hmm. My thermometer that was outside of the sunlight got warm. That was unexpected, now I need to find that. Yeah. And you can often... People, there are scientists who basically do nothing but data gathering. They they go and they survey and they collect data and they build bodies of knowledge mm-hmm. that then can just bolster other research. That now is is this vast encyclopedia of collection that can bolster it. Yeah, and that's like the salamander study. There was, yeah. wasn't really a. I mean, deep within the study, there were more intricacies, but the overall picture there. Wasn't you know we're not answering a big hypothesis. It's just hey, mm-hmm. look at this cool new piece of evidence. 
we found a new way to look at this, so let's yeah. do What it. is it evidence for? That's up to future researchers, right? You decide exactly. how you want to apply that evidence. But when you step back and still and look at the, you'll still find these steps because these are these this is the classic trial and error put to a logical model. Yes. Of testing concepts and ideas. It's the same way you find out a stove is hot as you go, well, mommy touches it. Ah. Yeah. <laughs> and you realize, okay, I can only touch it when mom and dad have not been using it. Yeah, you have to reduce those variables. <laughs> and so it's that's sort of, this is, you know, when you zoom out, if I made a discovery and I have to figure out why, well, I'm still making an observation that leads to a question that leads to a test. Yep. I just didn't come up with it out of, the, I came up with it with the, with an accident. Yeah. And it's leaning into the same process. If I'm gathering data, you know, especially if I'm comparing, if I'm going, all right, here's all my data. I, I need to make sure that the data is uniform. So I'm going to look at it from another angle. Well, that's me testing yep. my previous hypothesis that my data was good or that my data might you know, be flawed if I'm not looking at something. So you're still doing it in there. You're just not doing it in this A and B and C and de- and going through the steps in a very robotic way, you're just doing it in a much more fluid, in-the-moment way. We, we do it all the time when we make those observations, question, test it, find out whether we were right or wrong. Yeah. And so it, it falls in there. It's just, you don't, you know, it, it does not have to be a limiting factor. It is just something to stay aware of. And I think there's a whole lot more conversation to be had about things like, you know, we mentioned the core assumptions of reality, and we mentioned mm-hmm. reproducibility, and yes, can we actually replicate our studies and how many? Yeah, there's been a lot talked about lately of how effective is peer review in its current form and, and oh, absolutely. how many of our studies are actually repeatable. And so that mm-hmm. it's not right. We're human. We're fallible. It's not. Yeah. The individual pieces of it are not perfect. It's yes. the best we've got. It's been in the works for mm-hmm. like 2000 years and it seems to be doing us pretty well so far. Yeah. But it, you know, science is a long, long game kind of game. Long view, yes. long view ga- game, long episodes over. It's, it's, a, it. it's a long, long play hockey game. It's a long third, third quarter. <laughs> end of the. But just that's it, everybody. Well, you know, it, it it's it's a long process, and in the long run, the hope is that you know, and so far, it seems to work pretty well. Seem to be working, and if it seems like this episode shifted into a discussion of science and not the scientific method, well, it's hard to separate those two because, as the name says, it's the method of doing science. Yeah, it's the same thing. So discuss one is discussing the other. But with that, we have greatly talked about this subject. <laughs> we let you re- rest your weary ears <laughs> for next episode. This was a very. I wasn't rambly. Hopefully, it wasn't too rambly. But then we went. We were. Yeah, all, you you tell. Yeah, us. you tell us. <laughs> <laughs> and we talked about a lot of things. It was very discussion-y. And if you like that, listeners, we'll keep doing it. If, if there's things in here you'd like to hear more about, if there's things you have an opinion on, if we if we touched on something and you think that, you know, you agree, you disagree, you, you want to make a point that we didn't make, let us know. Let's start having conversations mm-hmm. on them, them social media platforms we have. Yeah, please, please. We love it. Uh, so tell us what you want to hear. Tell us what other things you want. We are always listening for suggestions, for comments. Mm-hmm. Contact us on social media. Email us at commonsensepodcast at gmail.com. Check out the blog. We'll throw up a bunch of links and stuff on there. Leave us reviews and, and ratings on iTunes. Apparently, yeah. those are really important. Do those, please. 
<laughs> and yeah, get in touch with us. Let us know what you want to hear. Listen to us next time on Common Descent. We release episodes every fortnight. Fortnightly, we release those episodes. Yes. Four score minus sixty six oh, days. I don't know. I was about to say I, f- I forgot that I forgot the math on four, four score. score. Score is twenty. Yes, it fortnightly is. Fortnightly episodes. Fortnightly. Goodbye, everybody. We will see you next time. <laughs> on, on our first score of episodes. Ah. One score. Yeah. One oh, it score is. It is one score of episodes. It is. This is. We've made a score. Point. Man, we scored. We got a goal unit yes. basket. Man, if yes. we weren't rambling Woo. before, we'd done it. <laughs> Goodbye, everybody. We will see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Common Descent Podcast. For more from us, you can follow us on the Common Descent Podcast Twitter account, Facebook page, or on our WordPress blog where we post additional cool stuff for each episode. The song you're hearing is called On the Origin of Species by Protodome. You can find this and other video game remix music at ocremix.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope to see you next time. Thank you.